0: I want to encourage you this morning to open your Bibles to uh, the book of Psalms as we look at Psalm 63. And Psalm 63 is a more familiar psalm. You just sang it. That was from uh, this particular psalm. It's one of the more, uh, as commentators reference it, as one of the most beautiful psalms in the Psalter. So I'm excited to talk about it this morning. Would you please stand as we honor the reading of God's Word? A Psalm of David My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God, and all who swear by him shall exalt, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word. Would you please have a seat? Well as you as you many of you know, this week I was in I spent some time in in Colorado with a, a group of guys and one morning, uh, we were talking about the effects of the altitude, uh, the dryness, and the pollens that in the air they were experiencing. You know what? When, when you remember that time when all of our cars were covered with that yellow-green stuff. Well, that's what's going on there right now. Uh, so we have this altitude, we have the dryness, we have the pollen, and we're talking about that effect on the eyes, as everybody's eyes seem to be watering and feeling it itching. But for those with contacts, who wore contacts, things seemed to be doubly harsh on them, and one of the guys that was in our party wore contacts, and I didn't realize that before. I guess that's why you wear contacts, so people don't know uh, that you have glasses. But he was talking about the trouble they were causing with his eyes, and somehow he got to talking about how… Um, uh, what, what… the problem with is why he needed contacts in the first place, and that he was nearsighted, and he was describing how the first time he went to the eye doctor and had his eyes examined and had some lenses crafted for them and put them on and could suddenly, for the first time, see things that were far away that he had always been used to just being fuzzy. Now, if you can imagine going through life like that, thinking that this is normal, and all of a sudden you see something with sharp clarity, you instantly know, oh, well, this is the way it's supposed to be. I've been living in such a way that It was never supposed to be. I just didn't know it. Now, if you imagine a time, once you've seen it like that, and you lose your glasses, all of a sudden you're keenly aware of the fact that things are a problem. You don't ever want to go back to a life before that. Now, when we read so many of the Psalms, they they talk about this very thing, but not necessarily with the physical eyes, but with maybe the, the spiritual eyes or the eyes of the heart. Once you have seen, you had those spiritual eyes opened, and see things for what they really are, you can never, ever go back. It's a thirst that you will find that nothing else will ever quench. And so many of the Psalms speak of this theme. They're talking about the fact of being in the presence of God has somehow altered their souls. It has stirred up something in their soul that once it has been stirred up, they know that there is nothing on this earth that can possibly refresh it like what they've experienced in the presence of God. And it, again, as I mentioned, it's such a familiar psalm. It's hit by the psalmist in the very first verse, O oh God, You are my God, earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You, my flesh faints for You, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So somehow the psalmist, psalmist who's writing this, presumably King David, uh, he's had an experience with God that has been so powerful, so compelling to have it stripped away is like being forced out into the desert that's what he's saying and, it's, and again it's a familiar theme. We, we look at it and we see it again in Psalm 42 which was uh, A verse referred to in the beginning of your bulletin, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? Psalm 43 talks about it. Send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy. And I will praise you with the lyre, O God, my God. A very familiar one in Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts! My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. You make known, in Psalm 16, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. So we, we get the clear sense that if you've ever tasted this like David has tasted it, then you will never be satisfied with anything else. It's, it's simple. It's not, it, there's just no comparison. And that's what we're supposed to derive from reading these Psalms. It's like going from a blurry vision to a clear vision. You know intuitively that it is right, that it is the way it should have always been, and to go back would be nothing short of, of death. Now, while it's a very familiar theme in the Psalms, it is not a familiar experience, I'm afraid, in the church at large. I don't think we know what, it, what it's like to have this experience. We're, we're used to teaching. We're used to good teaching. We're used to fitting, you know, the pieces of the puzzle together. We're familiar with, for example, going through a book like Romans, which is so logically com- compelling in building a case for God and how God brings about salvation for His people. So it's, it's, it's uh, exploring the doctrines of truth. And we're also very familiar with the teachings about how are we to live? What is our life supposed to look like? So we're used to the doxology, the praxology, if you think of it like that, the good doctrine and the good way of living in, re, in result of that. But, if, but this experience is something that's is much less common in in the church, and I, th- I think that's that's a sad thing. That's a horrid thing, and uh, it's it's an intangible thing. It's hard to put your finger on that, uh, but but somehow, as we look at this, there must be <laughs> you think about there must be some reason why David talks about this so frequently. Is because we are supposed to experience it too. We are encouraged, we are invited, we are, we are pushed to experience it too. I mean, I think about how we often have reasons for coming to worship that are, you know, not necessarily bad reasons. We go because, as I mentioned earlier, because our parents bring us. We go because maybe we haven't been a long time and we feel like we, you know, we, we miss it. We go because... Maybe there's a, you know, we want to meet the kind of people that, that go, we, we go for a variety of reasons, and none of them are bad reasons necessarily. But I don't know how often we go because there is an experience that we're wanting to have that is just like nothing else. We go because we know there is only one place, only one place that our thirst, that real thirst can be satisfied. You know, that's, that's just missing. So, how do we learn from David in this? How do we move away from uh, being like the person that Jesus had partially healed of his blindness. You'll perhaps recall that story when Jesus healed a, a blind man in stages in Mark chapter 8. You know, the first time he sees him or he comes to him and he puts his, he, he puts his hands on his eyes and he, and he asks the man, so what do you see? He says, oh, I, may, I, see, I see people walking around that look like trees. And so Jesus, you know, touches him again and then he can see clearly. And it's it's like He's the only one up to that point in the Gospel of Mark who can see clearly. It's like there's this spiritual metaphor that He's referring to. Everybody else is kind of like this guy who can only see partially what's true. And I think that's a great description of where so many of us are in the church. We see partially what is true. We see the, the idea that God is good. We see that the Gospel tells us that Jesus came to die on the cross to pay for our guilt, for our sin. We see that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived. He died the death that we were we should have died. We get that. We see those things. But still, we don't have this sense that if we don't come into the presence of God on a regular basis, that we will die of thirst. That our souls will literally shrivel up and be blown away. I don't think we have that sense. So how do we, how do we get it? How do we understand it? How do we learn from this psalm? And I think there there's some certain principles I want to derive out of it. And the first one is simply this, that we have to recognize that we live in a desert. We live in a desert. And I don't mean that, of course, literally. I mean, this is a humid, one of the most humid places in the country. But we live in a desert spiritually, and I don't think we really Recognize it and the world itself is living in a desert. The world itself is desperately thirsty for God It just doesn't know it It's aware vaguely that there's things wrong. We all know that there is a sense in which All of us know that things aren't as they ought to be Everyone has experienced in this room loneliness Everyone has experienced anxiety, right? You know what it feels like to be insecure But what are these? These are, you could say, the dried-up fruits of living in the desert. That's what they are. If you know what it means to feel these things, then you know what it's like to live where your soul is not being satiated. Things just are not right. Now, the world knows this too. It's not like this is unique to us. The world knows this. It's why there are wars in the world because people think that, there are diff- that people have different ideas of how it is that we can fix this thirst. So one thinks that the way to fix it is to have for everyone to have the right ideology. That's kind of the idealist approach. If everyone just had the right ideology, then we could fix this thirst the world is experiencing. Others might say it's, it's materialism that'll fix it. If we just had the right things... And we could fix it our souls will be satisfied i mean we've talked about this before advertisers are very much aware of this this is why they're so effective because they can appeal to this thirst that they that the world is aware of suggesting that their product is the elixir that will satisfy that thirst in your soul they don't ever call it that they just vaguely appeal to the sense that you know you're missing something and we have what it is that'll that'll fix it that'll fill it in we have what will satisfy your thirst And Dan Allender uh, wrote in his book called Redeeming Heartache, he describes it this way, our hearts intuit that we are not where we're meant to be and we're forced to reorient ourselves to a reality in which our needs will not be met, at least not in the way we desire. At this point of demarcation, we choose a soul-deadening response that makes us feel more in control but blinds us to the truth. In doing so, we attempt to deny the fallen world. And I think that's where a lot of us are. We want to deny the fact that there's a fallen world, that there is something in this world that can fix the problems that we seem to have. The psalmists, many of them, however, they do know there's something better. This is why David takes advantage of his time in the desert, but that's where he is when he writes this psalm, to draw the comparison. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. If we are to experience God as the psalmist says, experience God, then we have to first recognize this anxiety and insecurity and loneliness for what it is. Evidence of the fact that we live in a desert for the soul. We live in a desert for the soul. Now, that should bring us to the point of if we recognize that, then we have to see that well, if we are thirsty, there must be something that will satiate that thirst. That's just, that's just instinct, right? C.S. Lewis would write about that. He says, if your elbow is hurting, you know that something is not right. If you feel thirsty, there must be something that was designed to satiate that thirst. And the psalmists are hinting at that. They're hinting, they're hinting at that, and David even refers to it. He talks about he talks about it later on when he says there is something uh, better than life. He says, your steadfast love is better than life. So, that's ultimately the reference. This is what will satisfy the thirst of the soul. And I was thinking about that, that whole concept. Your love is better than life. And it's a, it's, a, it's a great statement, you know, to put in a psalm and a quote it or something like that. But you think about what does that actually mean? Your love is better than life. Now, Granted, let's think about the time that David was writing. David is writing at a time when we don't have a very clear doctrine of the resurrection. Not that there aren't hints of it in the Old Testament, but it certainly wasn't spelled out like we have it in the New Testament. So there wasn't necessarily this great idea that uh, there was something beyond life. Not a clear idea anyway. So for him to say, your steadfast love is better than life, he's saying a lot. And, and how would we define life? I was trying to figure that out, too. We could talk about physical life. I don't want to die. But I think there's more to it. You know, this past week, we had, I had a great time with these guys I was with. And there was one particular night uh, where we had gone to the grocery store. We had picked up these, uh, one of the guys had bought for all of us, these inch-and-a-half-thick ribeye steaks, about probably two pounds apiece. I mean, they were huge and, and baked potatoes. And we went home or went to the place where we were staying. And, you know, one of the guys uh, seasoned it all up real well. I think he put butter and all kinds of other seasoning on top of it. And he grilled them. And oh my gosh, they were fantastic. And after supper, we went out and sat on the deck, which was right by this Florida river that's flowing by. You know, and everybody has a little drink in their hand. And we're just talking about the experiences of all the beautiful things we'd seen that day. And we're listening to music. You know, our, st- our bellies are full our hearts are full, and we're having a great time. And it's one of those moments when you would say to yourself, boy, life just doesn't get better than this. You've had those moments, right? When you've said, man, it just doesn't get better than this. Well, David is saying, no, it does. It does get better than this. And this is what it does. This is what it is. It's the steadfast love of God. Somehow, Maybe we don't understand it, but all you have to do is reflect on that moment when you said, it doesn't go better than this, and know, if not by experience, by testimony of David that, yes, it does, and it can. And if I haven't experienced it yet, that doesn't mean it's not out there. It means it's just waiting for me to experience it. Jesus talks about this. He refers to this in John chapter 4, that famous story when He meets the woman at the well in Samaria... He says, every, and they're at this, uh, this water well, and he has asked her for, a, if, you know, to give her a drink of the water, and, and, uh, and then he begins to say this about the well. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And you have to think, what is he talking about? He's not talking about something that's physical, obviously. He's talking about the Holy Spirit, but ultimately he's talking about the Holy Spirit as the Holy Spirit brings the presence of God directly to you. Because as we try to understand what is it that David experienced that was the water for his soul, it was the presence of God. I mean, let's go and look at this, what he says together. He says in in verse 2, "...so I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory." And the reason that he feels thirsty in the wilderness is not necessarily because of the physical thirst of the dryness of the land, it's because he's away from the temple. This is one of those times when he was chased away from Jerusalem, and he couldn't go back to the temple to worship. And so he's feeling the thirst in his soul because in the temple itself was associated the covenant presence of God. So somehow when David would go into the temple to worship, he had some kind of experience there that left this kind of impression on his soul. Now I don't know exactly what that was. I don't, I didn't ever see Old Testament worship. And we know some of the things that happened there, right? We know that that if you went to the temple, you would, you would see the bleeding of animals. You would see someone with a knife, you know, slashing a neck, catching the blood, dripping it on the altar. I mean, it was a very very, uh, memorable scene, you know, especially if you've never seen that before. You know, you smell the animals. You see the blood. You see the steam coming off of the fresh blood. You hear the musicians and the singers, which have been commissioned and called together to make music when the festivals would happen. Now, in a time when there wasn't CDs or albums or tapes or anything like that. You couldn't stream music anytime you wanted. The only time you ever heard music was if it was live. And this isn't just live music, someone just making a random song. These are the practiced musicians and the singers. So this would be the only time you hear such beauty. So maybe it was that. Maybe it was, you know, the animals and what they're saying about your, your sin is being taken care of. These sacrifices are being made so that you yourself don't suffer under the, under the hand of a holy God. Maybe it's the fact that when they go into the temple, David, is, David knows that God's power is on display because this temple only exists because of God's power. For there in Jerusalem, a place that was occupied by people who hated God, who were enemies of God, who are much stronger than them, and yet there They exist as a testimony to the fact that God had brought them into a land that He promised to give them and pushed out enemies that were stronger and bigger than them. You'll recall what the spies said when they went in first to spy out the land of Canaan and came back and said, we were like grasshoppers in their eyes. They were giants in the land. They have fortified walls. So maybe that was an experience. I don't know exactly. I don't think any of us know what happened to david when he went into the temple to walk away saying somehow when i'm in the temple i'm experiencing something about the presence of god that has so changed me that my soul is thirsting it is dying apart from it thank you that's i don't know what that is but that's not our car is it (laughs) going off i'm gonna press my button or something so how do we taste that this water of the soul, this presence of God. And I think there are some clues to how we do it in here. Maybe not as straightforward as you think, but there are some clues in here. But I think it starts, first of all, it starts by believing that God has the thing that can satisfy the thirst in your soul. Now, I know a lot of us may believe that already. We say we believe it. But there's a difference between acknowledging something believing something to be true and tasting it as uh tim Keller he's going through and he's talking about this psalm and he's he's summarizing jonathan edwards who was big on on a uh, experience he says the difference between believing god is gracious and tasting god is gracious is as different as having a, a rational belief that honey is sweet and having actually uh, tasted of that sweetness a man may have a belief in sweetness without the experience of it, but a man cannot have the experience without the belief. So we have, first of all, it starts with believing that I believe that if I come before the Lord, He does have the water that will satisfy my soul. So that's where it starts, starts with that. Well, let's, secondly, what, is it, what do we see? What does the life of the satiated soul look like? This is the last piece of the puzzle, and it's really mostly what the psalmist is talking about. This is what a life looks like whose soul has been satiated. So beginning in verse 3, Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. That's the first thing. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips when I remember you upon my bed. And meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. So if we just go through there, what is, what is he doing? Well, he says, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. He is actively engaged in worship. I know sometimes we think of that as a duty, something we have to do, but he is actively engaged in worship because he has tasted that the Lord is good. And somehow that act is helping make that, press that down into reality. Now, I say that because a lot of us who come here might come occasionally rather than regularly. Or when we do come, maybe we do come regularly, but when we're here, what happened? Why do I sound so different all of a sudden? You didn't change anything. You guys hear me okay? Okay. This is a very distracting morning, sorry. Uh, what was I talking about? Oh, about worship, the, active, the activity of worship. Um, a lot of us come to worship uh, for some of the wrong reasons, or a lot of us come not frequently do come and we are here we're not actively worshiping i mean think about what david is saying says with my lips i will praise you something as simple as that how many of you when you come use your lips how many of you are out loud blessing the lord i'm always amazed when i come into a worship service and you know the the band is up there singing and you have maybe 10, 20% of the people singing. There is no worship. They're there, but their lips aren't actively engaged in blessing the Lord. That somehow the activity of doing this is making the presence of God not just a theory, but an experience. I don't know how that works. I just know we see it over and over again in the experience of the psalmist, that without the activity of actually worshiping, we're just here. I mean, this this is the remarkable thing about, about that idea. David, when he says in the wilderness, I'm longing for the courts of the Lord, I am thirsting for God like in a dry and weary land, he's he knows that when he's in the temple of God, he will experience the presence of God. So it's not this rare thing that he's talking about. Oh, I experienced it one time. I remember that time when we brought the Ark of the Covenant back in, back in and it was just wonderful. And that one time is the one time I experienced God he's referring to. No, he's referring to something he experienced all the time, regularly, as he committed himself to this activity. So it wasn't meant to be a rarity on the one sense. It's it's available every time he would go into the temple to to worship. But we also know that not everyone who went into the temple experienced it. There were so many people that were continually blind to this whole idea. It's what Isaiah and the prophets are writing about constantly. When they say, what does he say? And the people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me. So it does suggest to you that while There is this expectation that you can experience the wonders of the presence of God as you come into worship, every time. You can also never experience it, as often as you may come, every time. The question is, do I expect it to be there? And am I responding to that expectation with the active engagement in worship? Or do I just stand when it's time to sing, and just stand there waiting for the song to be over. Or when the confession goes, I say the words, but I have no idea what I'm saying because I'm not really paying attention to them. I mean, you can sing without thinking about anything you're singing to, but to take the words as you sing them and make them your blessing to the Lord means you have to think about what you're actually saying. You have to concentrate. You have to meditate on that whole idea of what the song is about. And there's not we sing songs that certainly aren't perfect, I mean, we we don't interpret things perfectly all the time, but that doesn't mean that they don't help us engage in meditating and worship in making this experience a reality. So number two, we are to meditate on God in the watches of the night. How many of you do that? Meditate on God in the watches of the night. And I'll, I'll admit I don't practice this on a regular basis. It's not something I think about when I wake up, which I often do you know, at 2.30 or 3 in the morning because I'm getting older and I have to go to the bathroom? (laughs) No, it's not TMI. It's just reality. That may be God's way of saying, here's your time to meditate on me in the watches of the night. Opportunity. But how many of us do that? You know, this week, as I was preparing for this sermon, you know, I'm in Colorado and I'm not sleeping that well, so I tried this. I thought, what is it like to do this? And it doesn't just say, this is what also got me as I thought about this, it doesn't just say meditate on the grace of God, meditate on the glory of God, meditate on the holiness of God. It just says meditate on, I meditate on you, I meditate on God. And that's a whole different ballgame. How do you meditate on just God? And as I did it, it was nothing like I was expecting at all, because my first thought was, if I'm meditating on God Himself, all I could see or all I could think about was how selfish I am, how unfaithful to Him I am, how self-righteous I make myself appear in the world. I mean, all of these things just seemed to be totally exposed about me. And it was, it was terrifying, to be honest. I, I, all I could do was think about you know, Isaiah's experience when he had that vision, Isaiah chapter 6. Woe is me. Woe is me as I think about God, because if I'm thinking about the God who sees me, I am utterly and completely laid bare. There is nothing hidden. It's so easy to deceive yourself. It's easy to deceive everybody else out there. You know, you can control the way people see your image. I mean, Facebook, social media allows you to do that in the social world. It's a little perhaps harder to do in person, but it's still very viable. It's even easy to deceive yourself. But when you start thinking about God and you realize there's absolutely nothing that He can't see through, that's frightening. It's terrifying. But then as you continue to meditate on God and you realize, well, what do I know about this God? God. Am I the only person who is so unholy? Am I unique? I mean, the enemy would have me think this. But I'm not unique. You know, this is common to human nature. And it is the reason why God sent His Son into the world. And when we read, we read sentences in Romans when He says, God demonstrates His own love toward us in this, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I mean, That shouldn't just pass over us. When you realize, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm in the presence of God, I should be undone. And I'm not. Why am I not? Because the steadfast love of God is better than life, and that's when it hits you, only when you know how much you deserve to rot in hell, just to put it bluntly. Until you understand that God knows that far better than you ever will, and yet He chose to send His most precious Son to die in your place, then worship will mean nothing. That Your experience of God will not happen. It will remain ethereal. It will remain an idea in your head that you think about, and you might say you believe, but it really doesn't mean anything because you've never really tasted with your soul that water that will quench it. But once you have, once you have, this is what your life begins to look like. You drink from the well by engaging in worship. You drink from the well by meditating on God in the watches of the night. That's not a chore. What does he say about when he does that? It's like eating the richest of foods. It's not a hard thing to do. There is nothing greater upon which you can meditate. And when you do, he says, My what does he say? How does he say it? My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food. So it's not like you're doing God a favor you are quenching the thirst of your soul. So again, you're here this morning perhaps because you have at least heard one time or another the simple truth, the invitation of the gospel that says, yes, you're guilty before God, but Jesus came to die the death you should have died, to live the life you should have lived, and He offers you His righteousness for all of who would believe in Him. Right? We get that. We know that. But the psalmist is taking us deeper. He's saying, I don't want you just to think about that as true. I want you to experience what that means. I want you to taste that that is good. I want that to satisfy and quench your soul because you know what that has done has allowed you to come into the place where God Himself dwells. And again, as we mentioned in the Old Testament, that was the physical temple. That was the representation of God's place. We don't have the temple in the New Testament like they had in the Old Testament. There's no physical structure that we go to. I mean, we can think about this building, but that's not the temple. The temple in the New Testament is the greater temple of the Old Testament, and the new temple is made of living stones, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2. You yourself are living stones built together to be the temple in which the Holy Spirit Himself dwells. So again, it's an invitation to corporate worship. It's the place when the living stones are built together in which we find the presence of God. And you can only experience the presence of God if you're coming in recognition of what Christ has done to bring God close. But that's what He's doing. He's bringing God close to you. So, again, the psalmist He's not just talking about the gospel. He's talking about experiencing God's presence through the gospel. So this morning, I want you to invite you to experience the presence of God. To think about God, especially as we come to this table. It's why the table is the highlight of every Sunday. Because in the table, we have a visible representation of a table that the Lord Himself has set and is inviting us to come and to eat with Him, to eat a meal with Him. That's saying, I am present. I'm here. So, come. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, thank You so much for allowing the saints of old to share the experience with us of what it's like to be in Your presence. Lord, we know that living on this side of what Jesus has accomplished, we have even greater access to your presence than they did. So as much as David may have enjoyed you while he was on this earth, Lord, how much more can we, because Christ has come, that we might know that your love, your steadfast love, is better than life. As we come to this table, Lord, would you allow us to experience that in Jesus' name?